You're listening to Rosie on the House. On this beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, first Saturday of the month, so we're not going into the yard, we're going into Agland. We've got Julie Murphy of the Arizona Farm Bureau in studio with us, and everyone that has our home maintenance calendar, I have misled you. We were supposed to talk about chilies today, Julie. Yes. And when you asked me, it's cotton, right? And I'm like, C, 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 chilies, cotton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's cotton. It's, it was supposed to be in November. It was right. supposed to be our cotton month and chilies today. So everyone expecting a chili recipe, I apologize. I screwed up. But we've got a great broadcast for you this Saturday talking about the cotton industry in Arizona. And I have right. spent the morning reading over your couple blogs about uh, seven facts about cotton, why in God's name, are we growing cotton in the desert? Which is a hilarious response to some knucklehead northeasterner that <laughs> didn't know what they were talking about. And, right. But that's the point of this all is the education for uh, Arizona homeowners about the ag department and how does that relate to the outdoor living hour? Well, you know, it's a it it, it completes the entire outdoor living hour. We've got the ag department on the first Saturday of the month. And a lot of these things that we talk about, you can learn and grow on your own. We had melons earlier. That's a great backyard crop. You'll learn some interesting things about cotton. I didn't know that we can apply. Second Saturday of the month, we talk uh, arboriculture with a certified arborist, integrity tree service. Third Saturday of the month, we talk landscape and gardening with Jay Harper. And then the fourth Saturday of the month, we talk urban farming with Greg Peterson. So it completes the entire outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House. And you've brought a guest in with you this morning as we talk cotton. Yes, Paco Allerton from Pinal County, longtime farmer, uh, his whole family. And actually, you know, I think it's good that we kind of fumbled on our commodities and we picked cotton for October because, or I mean September now I'm really moving us forward <laughs> because uh, Paco in November was is going to be really busy, and including all of the other cotton farmers, because we're pretty much starting harvest. So it was good we brought him in early. And welcome, Paco, to the Rosie on the House show. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Now, Paco, a little bit of your background and history. Y'all have been cotton farming. This is your 39th year now? This would be my 38th crop right now. Um, third-generation cotton farmer. My grandfather came down from Utah oh, back after World War I, I believe. And uh, my father fell in his footsteps, and, and I've fallen in behind him. Now, that three generations of farming is a lot, but an interesting stat I read reading your uh, your blog, Julie, y'all, y'all are still pretty new to the cotton industry. When you look at the ho-ho comes, have been growing it for 3,000 years. <laughs> In Arizona. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, yeah, they've been doing it a lot longer than we have. And they, some of the same canal systems that our farmers today use, we followed the pa- patterns of the hohocoms. So that's what makes it so special and such a special crop here in Arizona. And we've improved our efficiency. Paco can talk, speak to this better than I can. But I think 100 years ago, it was 8 to 9 acre feet. That's our ag measurement. 8 to 9 acre feet to grow one acre of cotton. And farmers like Paco have cut that in half, and in some instances, more than half. Yeah, um, technology advancements in laser leveling, sprinkler irrigation, drip irrigation, we have reduced our footprint on water usage by quite a bit. 
Uh, I've got a farm that uh, 16 years ago we put in 200 acres of buried drip, and we went from using seven, seven and a half acre feet down to about four and a quarter, four and a half acre feet. And then the big plus is we've brought our average up on our yield by about a thousand, about 500 pounds of lent from two and a half to well over three and a half bale average on that farm year in, year out. So, so you literally are using less water, but you're growing more cotton. Growing more cotton, less water. Um, and you see that in a lot of crops where uh, you've switched to drip. Uh, we were talking watermelons earlier. I've grown watermelons before in the past, and on drip, you almost double your yield on the same acre. So Now, one of these stats I was reading is the average bale per acre, we get about twice than the national average. Is that a main reason the, the other places just haven't switched to drip? No, the other places, the other areas, a lot of it is is from natural irrigation, rainfall. Mm -hmm. Um, They are starting to catch up in some areas. It's like there's a lot of drip in Texas. Uh, The issue there is is that they need moisture. They need moisture to get it up first, so they have to have rain. They bury their drip tape uh, so it doesn't freeze in the winter because they're so much colder, so they bury it a lot deeper than we do. Uh, parts of the southeast, uh, the delta, so to speak, in the mid-south, uh, varieties have helped a lot too, uh, more efficient, um, and, and through use of sprinkler irrigation and, and different technologies have helped increase their yields. Now, is weather factored into that? Is it because a lot of our crops aren't wiped out by hurricanes that blow through? That is a factor in a lot of cases. Um I don't, you know, we, I couldn't tell you when, well, I shouldn't say this, but (laughs) because it was just four years ago myself, we had just defoliated in October about five days later, I had a hailstorm that came through the farm about 12 o'clock that afternoon um, and shredded it, a lot of rain, didn't look too bad, got back in, looked at it. Got home, and a friend of mine called me about 5 o'clock, and he says, that was a heck of a hailstorm we had, wasn't it? And I said, you talking about the one that happened at 12? And he says, no, I'm talking about the one that just happened about a half hour ago. Get back to the farm, and we had had one heck of a storm compared to the first storm. Two hailstorms in the same day, two and a half inches of rain, and just shredded the crop. Just shredded it. We didn't pick hardly anything that year. That's why we have crop insurance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the neat thing, too, when you make the comparison, and Paco referenced it, is so uh, we call it dry irrigation. In other words, they have to depend more on God than we do here in Arizona because we do applied, very managed, irrigated um, watering to the crops. And because we can be so precise with it, that's one of the reasons why farmers like Paco can really increase their yields. And the fact that normally, now you just described a crazy weather phenomenon on your farm, but normally because we have so little rain, that's one of the reasons why the quality of our cotton here in Arizona is so impressive. It's some of the whitest, purest white cotton, uh, very strong fiber on your short staple, which is basically short fiber, and then the long fiber. And that's, Arizona and California are the ones that can claim that high quality cotton. And that's what we want on the market because then it 
people are always coming back to Arizona and California, and basically all of our cotton. I think there's 16 or 17 cotton belt states in the state in the United States, Paco. Yeah, I think it's up to 17 now. So, but and and you're right um, as far as the color and the quality. The other thing that we do get here is that the seed companies, and it's, we don't, a lot of people don't think about it, but we get great quality planting seed out of Arizona because of our dry falls and dry summers. And the seed companies do a lot of seed production for the whole cotton belt across the United States. And you often have grown for that quality seed, correct? Yes, almost on an annual basis I grow some. Okay. And cotton seed... It's hard to tell the exact origin of cotton because it is so hardy and it travels globally without being uh, affected. They, they don't really know where the original origin of, of cotton is quite tied to. Yeah, they said that the seed itself, some of the research I've done, is so sturdy that even if it's carried along by wind and, you know, and this was in ancient times, the seed that Paco grows oftentimes for the seed companies. It's in a very controlled environment, and, you know, weather conditions make it premium for Paco to be one of those seed cotton seed growers. But in ancient days, because it just seemed all over the globe and they could, you know, now we look back at and compare today, the present and the ancient times, and we've just concluded, I guess our archaeologists have just concluded that the cotton seed is a very sturdy seed. And one of the reasons so many countries do grow it, we have a very competitive global market, but the United States, to me, is there at the top in terms of the quality of our cotton. And this is pretty close to home for you, Julie, because this is your family crop. Correct. We did, uh, through 2005, we grew cotton, wheat, and alfalfa, and I just love the crop. It's a tough crop to grow. I kind of say you have to be a <laughs> a crazy farmer to want to do it. And it's long season here in Arizona. We're planting it the 1st of April, April, correct, Paco? And we're typically harvesting in November. Yeah, depending upon which part of the state you're in, but anywhere from the 1st of March to the through April and, um, and coming off. In fact, the guys in Yuma right now are starting to harvest probably this week. A lot uh, earlier than up. you. Yeah. yeah, a lot earlier than we do. Um, we don't even have anything defoliated in our part of the world ready to get it ready to pick. Now, is that because, why is that? I can't imagine Yuma to Stanton is that big of a different climate change. They're kind of forcing the issue because they're also prepping for their produce because remember the produce. So they're, they have to push their crop a little bit quicker than. They got to get their land ready for planting because they're the biggest lettuce producer. Right. <laughs> and they're doing that because it's good for the soil to rotate crops. So if they can get two or three crops in a cycle in a given year, then it's good for the soil, and there's all sorts of other reasons. Not going to disagree with that. Yeah. Um, some of the guys down there knew them. I mean, the other thing is, is because of cultural practices and plow-up rules and their weather pattern they have, they can plant a month earlier than we can, technically. They can plant as early as the 1st of February and take advantage of the spring weather because it gets so hot and so humid in Yuma in July that you have a hard time setting crop. Uh, it won't, it'll, it'll, you'll have too much heat stress and flowers won't pollinate and they'll just, in the squares, 
flowers and fall off and you won't produce a crop. But a lot of it is, and some of those guys will sit there and tell you cotton's a secondary crop for them. They want something to use up the residual fertilizer that was left over from the, the produce crop. But And they're under contract. They have to have rows up for that produce crop at a certain date. It's Rosie on the House with you every Saturday morning in the 8 o'clock hour. First Saturday of the month as we are here starting off September. We are talking cotton with the Arizona Farm Bureau. We were walking in high cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. Those fish. It's not hard to let your mind go to the South when you think cotton. We've got Alabama to thank for that, Greedon's Clearwater Revival. But uh, 3,000 years, uh, the whole whole come have been growing cotton here in Arizona. And I do have some numbers. I'm not going to let you get through the broadcast without crunching the numbers. We'll get awesome. to them in a little bit. But you had mentioned cotton's a hard crop to grow. Why is that? Paco, do you want to answer it? <laughs> it's just complex. It's a fruit. Um, so bugs love it. It's, uh, you just really have to stay on top of it. What else, Paco, should we describe? Uh, uh, you know, you're battling weather and trying to establish stands in the spring. You're battling rains, weather, uh, insects. You never really know what's going to come at you next. Um, the, uh, transgenic cotton and uh, the Bulgard cottons have helped us with the worm pest, uh, but we still have other pests piercing, sucking insects such as ligus. Uh, white flies are a problem for us. Uh, they also carry, and a lot of insects will vector diseases, plant diseases, which will, will hurt you quite a bit. And, uh, of course, and you get some of those diseases come in on storms from rains. Um, this year we had uh, an unusual situation in July and in the first part of August where we had the perfect scenario for uh, Old world, old world bullworm, as we call it, or corn earworm, um, and they were coming through some of the bullguard cotton. So, uh, haven't seen bullworm. In fact, there's some young PCA crop advisors out there right now that don't know what a bullworm is because it's been so long since we've had them here. The other thing that I like to highlight is because we think, well, cotton is a fiber, so you don't connect it as a food crop, but it actually is. It's a food crop. For livestock, with the cottonseed crushed and mixed into their feed, it's very high in protein and energy and all sorts of good stuff. But so it the, feeds the animals it, that feed us. Yes. And the other thing is the cottonseed oil. Chefs like it because it has a higher flash point, and if they don't want to add any flavor to whatever they're cooking through the oil. Like we love olive oil, and it is a healthy oil. It's a good oil, because, and it also can add flavor to whatever you're cooking. But cottonseed oil does, doesn't add flavor. It has a high flash point, so your chefs and some of your in-home chefs really love cottonseed oil. And something interesting I didn't know reading through some of your articles on cotton is it, there's more than just white cotton. Oh, yes. And, in fact, I've heard, according to the research, I've heard that there was actually some colored cotton. There was more a variety of colors way back when, but we— We've now, here in the United States, the majority of the cotton that's grown, obviously, is going to be the white cotton because it's easier to just add the cut, the color in the manufacturing process versus trying to grow it that way. 
And when you talk about colors, it's not the vibrancy that you see in a bright yellow or red, but hues of your light tans and some light greens and stuff like that. Yeah, and there were some blues and I think a red, if I remember right, okay. the greens and then various, various shades of tans. Um, I'm also under the impression that there is somebody still here in the state locally doing some small plot stuff uh, with uh, some colored. But And it's the, the other interesting thing, we were just talking about it a little bit late recently, is that they don't, unlike white cotton, uh, like in a T-shirt that will fade over time from washing, it ages and it just kind of goes dingy and yellow. The colored cottons actually get more color, more brilliant, and more vibrant the older they are and the more they've been washed, I've been told. Interesting. Yeah. That's a cool bit of trivia. I just love cotton. Now we just got to keep the moths out. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a very versatile fiber, too. That's why it's continued to be so popular and you know, we need our farmers to continue to grow it because we don't want to run around. We always say um, without farmers, we'd be hungry and naked. So yes. <laughs> there's some truth to that. Yeah, even fig leaves. Someone had to grow the fig leaves. <laughs> Someone tree. had to grow the fig leaves. <laughs> so out yeah. there growing. Well, uh, Paco, how many uh, how many acres of cotton do you current? And, and is that your only crop? No, it's not my only crop. I, I also grow some durum wheat, uh, which most of our durum wheat that's produced in the state of Arizona goes export over to Italy, Europe. Some of it goes to South America for pasta manufacturing. Um, uh, I grow some broccoli seed for seed production that's going to the Far East for the sprout market. Uh, I've grown some onion seed for onions, um, but cotton. Currently this year I have about 310 acres of cotton in the mix. And I've grown alfalfa in the past. I've also grown some uh, watermelons. I've had seedless watermelons, uh, the personal size, the regular size uh, seedless watermelons in the past. And I've done, uh, what else, chickpeas, I guess. I tried that one, too, or garbanzo beans, which is kind of an interesting crop. But that was a one-and-done thing. It didn't turn out so well. (laughs) (laughs) You got to (laughs) try. You got to try. Don't know till you stick it in the ground and see what grows. Exactly. We'll, we'll talk through some of the numbers and how big of a pie the cotton takes up on the Arizona's ag wheel, the $23 billion industry that we have here in Arizona, up from 17 How often do they do that census? They the, the census, the ag census is every five years, and we're always investigating those numbers go to azfb.org to learn more about it too and what's interesting about it i was our number of ag and farmlands have shrank but our number the dollar value has grown faster than inflation because of like what you're saying we're growing more with less correct higher yield very uh very fascinating industry very impressive there's i don't know that there's another industry that could claim that very few (laughs) when i was a little we had a listener call in. What were the details? They were on a cotton tour in Mississippi. And if you've ever been on the Mississippi River, you can't, uh, you'd never know there was fish in it by looking. 
It, it's a muddy, muddy river. Yeah, our listener said he'd been on a tour down the Mississippi River and bought a T-shirt called Mississippi Mud because it's the, that cotton is the color of the bank. Pretty cool. That is cool. Kind of reminds me of the dirt shirts that you see in exactly. Sedona, too. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so cotton. Back in the 50s, we were growing 700,000-plus acres. That number's down now around 160. 160, 65,000. I think that peak cotton acreage was in the 1980s, Paco. Is that correct? But anyway, we got up to 700,000. Now we're quite a bit down. But our per yield, our acre, per acre yield is higher, despite the fact that we've got less acres in cotton. Yeah, our I think when I came back 38 years ago, I think our average statewide average yield was about two and a half bales at, at 500 pounds, so roughly 1,250 pounds of lint per acre. The state average today is just a little bit over 1,500 pounds, uh, just a little hair over three three bales. Three bales. Yeah, bales to the acre is kind of our measurement on that. And we had you on a sh- just a one-segment interview <clears throat> a little over a year ago because we had gone to uh, – we were going through a transition and re- coming back to everything American-made. This shirt, 100% cotton, Schaefer, Western wear. I, I got to order them out of Houston because I can't find American-made Western shirts anywhere else. These jeans, though, these are 100% American-made Kimes out of Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, 100% American-made uh, the cotton – now, I'm not sure. I, I wanted to get a hold of them, but I didn't because all of their cotton came from the cone mill, which uh, is no longer around, but they've got a huge surplus of denim that all gets sewn in L.A., and then they sell it through their local distributors. And I was trying to think, okay, so how can we connect the Kimes to Arizona Cotton? Because, you know, th- that's one of their challenges is, is keeping American-made cotton. And you had some really fun statistics that I didn't think – I asked it uh, – sarcastically, well, no one will know this, but you you had the number. You can get out of that 480-pound bale, and you get about three bales per acre. Uh, but each bale will sew about 215 pairs of jeans. And we'll talk about the process from uh, growing it to actually the, the gen process and the, the machines that pick them. But, uh, and, and all of that, to say this blog is a little dated here, but that's enough uh, cotton that Arizona produces for about 97 million pairs of jeans a year. <laughs> I knew you'd figure that one out. I love it. And, it. and why cotton is a $160 million industry in Arizona. Yes. So one of the things that I also, we do export the majority of our cotton because we've offshored, so to speak, some of the manufacturing process, like like the milling. We don't have mill mills like we used to 100 years ago. But because we grow so much cotton, and it's such a high quality, and I know the Japanese like our fiber. I've been told that. So I'm always telling myself, if I'm getting a cotton blend blouse, or certainly some Levi's, I know some of my dad's cotton fiber has to be in that, even if it was manufactured offshore. So because we're doing such a great job here in the United States, and certainly in California and Arizona, it comes back to us just in a roundabout way. Yeah, it, it really does. In fact, I was in Southeast Asia two years ago with Cotton Council International on a tour, and we were talking about sustainability and 
responsible growing and, and a lot of different issues at a couple of different seminars, one in Jakarta, one in Ho Chi Minh City. We also got to get into some mills and got to see, and it's always impressive when you're in Vietnam or if you're in Indonesia and you're in a mill and in the layout room or in their warehouse, there is U.S. cotton in there because it's it's all tagged and it's all sourced and you know where it's uh, it's come. In fact, it'll... The tag, you can trace it back to a certain gen in a certain part of the United States. And if you really wanted to go up further, you can trace it right back to the actual grower and back to the actual field where it came from. And to be perfectly honest, we are producing about 20 to 21 million bales a year. We consume about 21 million bales a year worth of durable goods of cotton in the United States. But we're not even spinning uh, four million bales. We don't. We have enough spinning equivalent to do. I think the latest figures I just saw the other day were like two point nine million bales. So wow! So when you were on a year ago, it was four million bales. We had enough equipment for, and that's so. That's now down to two point seven. What? What? No, three point nine. I'm sorry, I might have misquoted. But yeah, it's somewhere. It it it'll fluctuate a little bit. But in a lot of our cotton from Arizona and California, and even a lot of there's a lot of high quality cotton comes out of Texas anymore, and especially in West Texas, the Lubbock Panhandle area. They've 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 had some great weather in some in some years, uh, but a lot of it goes export. Big uh, importers for us are China, Vietnam is up there, Korea, uh, a lot of the Asian countries, um, and then a little bit goes into Turkey. Uh, and a little bit into South America are our major markets anymore for raw cotton. And we have to have a degree of exports in agriculture because everything we export out, that means greenbacks are coming back to us. So it, we celebrate local. We promote local a lot. I encourage everyone. I've uh, been very influenced by Kimber Landing with Local First Arizona to make sure that you get a portion of your budget committed to those local dollars but in agriculture, if we don't have an export market for our crops, then we can't. That's that other piece of the whole economy that we're considering. It allows us to bring our do- the dollars back into our state and really have that growth. And that's why we can celebrate this $23.3 billion industry because there, there's a percentage of our crops that are being exported. Now, let's talk a little bit about the cotton processing. We talked a little bit earlier about the growing cycle. You'd mentioned they, uh, about March to October is your, your plant to harvest. Um, talk about an individual plant. You brought in a, what looked like it, you cut this off out of the field this morning. Yeah, I actually cut it out last night because I didn't really want to go out in the farm. <laughs> Everything's so wet and muddy out there. I just didn't want to track mud into the studio, but what I did is, is uh, I pulled a plant, and I looked for a plant to where I could show you a little bit of everything. It's got open bowls. It has immature bowls. It has bowls that are still filling, and it still has squares, which is the very beginning because it, you have a square. Uh, it's, the, it's the fruit. It's the piece of fruit, and eventually it will produce a flower. And if that flower pollinates, uh, then it develops into a small bowl, uh, and if an insect, such as we were talking about insects earlier, a ligus doesn't sting it, 
and suck the life out of it. Um, um, they feed on them. It will it will continue to grow and develop and mature to the point to where you've got an open bowl and then you've got cotton, like you say, um, in your hand. What you have is, is most cotton on upland varieties, which is what we're talking about, or short staple. Uh, the bowls will be four or five locks. You want to you want to look for seed development because the seed is is really where the fiber comes from. Uh, you're looking. I'm looking for somewhere between eight and nine seed counts per lock in a bowl, and then and the lock is that the, those the little lock, sections. Yeah, right. You okay. you you pulled the fiber out of one lock, I believe, Romy. Um, and there should be, hopefully, if you if you really started pulling it apart, I would hope that there's eight or nine seeds in there. I didn't fact check anything last night after <laughs> I pulled this plant. So I hope I pulled it. I noticed there was a lot of five-lock bowls, though. That was one of the things that impressed me with it. Uh, so, and then, and then the fiber grows out from the seed. And how do you separate the fiber and the seed? I mean, I have been sitting here playing with this the entire segment, and I haven't got one seed out yet. Well, it's it's... It, after you've picked it and it goes to the gin, they they run it through a couple of cleaners in the gin to remove some of the burrs or the locks and some of the sticks and leaf material as best they can. And then it goes into the ginning process. And it's basically a gin is a bunch of uh, saw blades that are, that are parallel to each other. And most stands, gin stands, I think, are about 150 saw blades and they're spaced about three-eighths of an inch to a quarter an inch apart there's a rib between them and then there's like a stationary knife at the bottom of this and the key for the gin is is to get this coming down falling from up above and it gets you get what you call a seed roll and it just it starts the, the lint the seed itself just starts rolling and those knives or the, the teeth on those saw blades are literally pulling that fiber away from that seed. It won't completely clean it up. Upland seed will always be fuzzy when it comes out of the gin, uh, and they have to acid lint it for us to uh, process it for, for the seed, for planting seed for the following year. Cattle, they just throw it, and they, they grind it with other feed, and you can feed it. Pima seed does come out almost lint-free. And uh, Pima long, seed is the, the long, long staple. The long, or the long staple or the fiber. Pima seed, as we call it. And it's black seed. And it, it does literally. And it's a different process. They don't run it through a saw gin. They run it through a roller gin. Used to use rhinoceros hide in the process, but they use a <laughs> synthetic uh, material on the, on the roller today. Shortage in rhinoceros hides. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So... It's more of a complex process than we realize. And how long does that take to get the seed, that, that whole process with the knives? I mean, is this a five-minute process that it can run through per bowl? Uh, you know, I, it, we measure it. They, the gins measure it in bales per hour coming okay. out the gin. And so my particular gin... You haul a module in, the big rectangular modules, and there'll be roughly 12 to 13 bales in there, seed, cotton, and, and lint all together with all the trash. And a little bit of luck, you'll come out with about 37, 38% lint. 
And out of that lint, I think the factor is 1.5 pounds of lint. You multiply the lint times 1.5 will give you your seed weight. And then there's a, there's a little bit of trash that comes out that they don't really measure. And then you get what we call lenters, which are really fine fibers, and they're real short that nobody wants in the mix. It creates problems at the spinning mills. So um, they're eating through a module probably about three or four modules an hour. So That's fast yeah, to me. Those modules are big. And there's some gins that are even higher capacity than that. Eight, I mean, big gins, big, a lot of big stands, gin stands as we call them, and they're cranking out somewhere between 75 and 80 bales an hour. So, Are, are there moving. any here in the state? I remember touring one 20 years ago, but it is probably longer ago than that. Now I started counting yeah. the years. It was almost 25. Yeah, two of the biggest gins in the state are down in Pinal County, Chandler Ginning and River Co-op, and they're both probably about that, anywhere from sev- about 70 bales per hour, plus or minus. Uh, technology is actually accelerating that and reducing the labor in the gin also. Uh, Chandler Gin installed a new um, a new press last year, so they don't have to have an operator there to pull the bales out. It's all automated weighs it, bags it, and everything where we used to have to do all that by hand. And you have to remember, cotton is biodegradable. Yes. You can, this one farmer, just to prove the point, he buried a pair of 100% cotton underwear, and two or three months later, (laughs) it was, you know what, the soil used it up, so to speak. Except for the elastic, right? (laughs) Except for the elastic. So the growing cycle is about an eight to nine month period of time. The picking, baling, ginning, you know, well, what is that? About, add about another month until it gets shipped out to the mills. How, how long? I'm just curious, these pair of Kimes jeans I'm wearing, how long ago was this, this, jean, this little fiber ball in my hand? <laughs> Would that take about a year for it to all come together? No, what do you I, think? I I would say about a year. Yeah, uh, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit longer. But they try to use uh, cotton will deteriorate over time in storage, and so there isn't a lot that sits around for a long time in storage. They try to use it up within a year. Um, and honestly, and I mean, if if you're talking about American made, and it was the fabric was, the yarn was spun here, and everything about a year. No big long tank time going from L.A. over to Indonesia area. Yeah, that, and that's an issue for them over there. It's it's getting to be a bigger issue. We hear it more and more from from importers uh, when you're in those countries or the exporters, as we call them. Uh, it's almost a ninety day turnaround from the time they they place an order, buy some cotton. And by the time you can get it out of a warehouse and load it on a, in a container on a boat and into their warehouse, it's almost a 90-day time frame. So they want to move it fast. They want it to get it fast. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and you've tied up their lines of credit. Or they've, they've tied up their lines of credit with their banks for that long, too. And they're, that's what they're really jumping up and down and screaming about anymore. Interesting. So, Well, let's bring Dan. He's got a question for the, our cotton grower, Mr. Paco. Dan, go ahead. 
Oh, good morning. Yes, sir. Well, this is in regards to the quality of or the type of cotton they're using for, say, T-shirts. Um, you know, I noticed oh, maybe 10 years ago when I would buy, I'd like a, a nice heavy-duty cotton shirt. And you read the label and it says 100% cotton. I have some shirts that I purchased way back then and then some shirts I've purchased recently and or in the last couple of years. And the old shirts, maybe, so, so like I said, a heavier cotton shirt, the more I wash my old. I think, did we lose I, him? I, I'm not sure. It's his line's still hot, so maybe we'll catch the signal back. I think what he was asking is, is yeah, there a the, difference in 100% cotton from 10 years ago? Uh, he seems like he got more per wash out of it. And that's probably more a question to, you know, the, the, the sewing. Right, and I think coming from the manufacturer, because the cotton, the quality of cotton, and, and a lot of that's influenced by the seed and the technology improvements in growing it today, we're actually producing a much higher quality cotton here in the United States. So I don't know, Paco, do you have any theories on that? You've gone all over the world to kind of see what manufacturers are doing in their processes and stuff. Yeah, I'm almost hesitant to say, but I'd say that in, if we're talking T-shirts, it would vary on manufacturers. The prices is dictated, the qualities that they buy. Um, I, I kind of agree with him. I think that the T-shirts that were made maybe 15 years ago were probably a little bit heavier. I don't know if the quality was any different, but I think prices inflect and influenced it. Sure. Uh, and we're not we're not seeing the heaviness like we used to see in the durability. I don't believe. I will tell you when I go shopping because I'm kind of a clothes hound and I love clothes, and that kind of happened from mom and I being really involved in the National Cotton Council and going all over the United States and promoting it. I actually look for a thicker whether it's in your T-shirts or your blouses, and you can pretty much tell, but you have to kind of have a focus of what's it feel like in my hands, and is it a heavier texture? Stitch count. It's kind of like we have the 500 uh, stitch count for sheets. So look for the same thing when you're purchasing your clothes. You might pay a prettier penny for that, but you'll get a higher quality blouse or shirt or whatever you're looking for. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, you're talking like a 200-count thread count sheet versus a 500-count. Is Obviously, the 500-count is going to be a little bit silk, silkier, smoother, and is going to be more durable. Um, and, and I also find that, like, in, if we're talking about T-shirts, like Dan was asking about manufacturers, there's a big difference between this manufacturer and that manufacturer because of the specs. Um what an interesting story. Years ago, 30, 35 years ago, there was a gentleman that worked for Anderson Clayton Company. who was a big ginning company here at the time. There's, they still have a presence in the state in California. But he was in the southeast part of the country when we still had mills. And he was in a room where they had racks and racks of polo shirts. And they were they were putting... Now, hang on, Paco. We're going to have okay. to finish that. Sure. And this the rest of that story will be on the podcast but our terrestrial radio broadcast timer only gives us 10 more seconds to wrap up this hour. Julie Murphy of the Arizona Farm Bureau, thank you for your time this Saturday morning. And Paul Alter on the, and what was the Terra Verde Farms? Terra Verde Farms, thanks for your time.
Okay, we were talking about uh, my friend that was in South Carolina at a mill, and they walked into a room full of uh, red polo shirts, and they were going three different lines and sewing three different labels in them. One was the Lacosta label, the other one was Lands Inn, and then the third one was the Ralph Lauren label, which I found interesting because it was all the same shirts coming out of the same manufacturing facility. So it's, I, I thought that was very interesting.